So today I want to begin a five-sermon series uh, on the theme, uh, The Essentials of the Christian Life. Uh, the Essentials of the Christian Life. I'll just tell you briefly what I think they are, and then I'll tell you why I think it's important as we begin to look at this text in John 4. Uh, it seems to me if you're going to live a Christian life faithful, you need to worship, you need to pray, you need to be in and study the Word of God. Uh, you need to be in, in good fellowship with other believers. And the last one, uh, I have a technical definition for, but you need to die to self and serve other people. You need to reach outside yourself. I call it outreach, but it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a, my own definition of outreach. Uh, it might be what we traditionally call outreach, and it might not be so much, worship, prayer, Bible study, fellowship, and outreach. Uh, I think these things are basic and fundamental for individual Christians and for local congregations. I think they're interdependent on one another rather than independent uh, uh, of one another. And let me explain what I mean by that and I'll illustrate it. In other words, somebody might say, okay, pastor, you've convinced me from the Bible, worship, prayer, uh, worship, prayer, Bible study, fellowship, outreach are the essential ingredients of Christian life. I'll just take a 60% approach, you know, and uh, I'll leave out two of my own choosing because I just really don't like those too well. And the problem with that is that these are interdependent. Uh, there, there's, a, there's an interaction between them. You can't just drop out two without affecting the others. So there was a lady in our church in Alabama many, many years ago that was a volunteer at a local crisis pregnancy center. And uh, in, in the eyes of many of us, she was a counselor in that center. She was the most unlikely person in the church to uh, uh, volunteer at a crisis pregnancy center because she was, frankly, just a little prudish in some ways. Uh, was considered to be, and I think actually was. I knew her a little bit. And so she came running up to me one day on Sunday morning, and she said, uh, Alan, Alan, where is that verse that says you should, you should meet together in worship and, and, and not forsake assembling together? And I said, well, it's in Hebrews chapter 10. Why? She said, well, I, I'm volunteering at this crisis pregnancy center, and, and I had this girl come I was talking to, and she said she was a Christian, but that she didn't go to church or worship anywhere. And she said, that's just not right. I said, no, that's a strange view of Christianity, I'll tell you. So what was happening to this lady? Her ministry was driving her search of the scriptures, no doubt was impacting her prayer life, her desire was that this lady she was counseling would, would be converted and, 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 or, or get her theology straightened out and come back to worship as well. You can't just drop out, say, the scriptures and pray correctly. You just won't do it. I mean, the elders, when they lead here, that's always scripture intertwined into the prayer. So my point is these things are interdependent on one another, not independent of one another. Uh, they can guide us in our strategic planning. What should a church program look like? Uh, what should the Christian life look like? It can direct us in what to do and probably as important, what not to do. It provides a checklist on 
how we're doing. So if some of you, if one of you came to me after worship today and said, hey, Alan, how do you think I'm doing in the Christian life? I'd say, well, um, how would I answer that question? How would you go about answering, answering that question? Suppose a Christian friend of yours came up and said, how, how do you think I'm doing in the Christian life? I'd say, what? Right? How would you know? What grid would you use? I think this is the grid. It's the grid by which I would evaluate and answer the question. It's a good question. You can do the same for yourself. Leadership can think this way. Now you say, Alan, I don't agree with you. That's okay. I mean, if you say that the Bible doesn't have an integral role to play in the Christian life, I'm going to kind of raise my eyebrows a little bit and ask you to reconsider that. But if you don't like my five, that's okay. Find your five, your four, your seven. You find them because we need to know what it is that we're about, right? We don't just go to church. We go to church for reasons. And I'm trying to spell out the reasons. Another way to approach this whole thing is to say, well, what if a, a new convert came to you and said, hey, I want to grow as a Christian. What do you tell them to do? What response would you give? Some of you would say, talk to the pastor. And you know what I'd say? Wimp, coward. You got to get your act together. The pastor's probably not going to be around when that happens. Don't chicken out. Have something to say. So, I'm trying to answer that question, how do I grow as a Christian uh, in these five sermons? Okay, let's pray. Look at John 4. Lord, help us to understand you and your ways with your people, what it is you want us to do and what it is you don't want us to do, how to invest our time and efforts and energies wisely. Uh, speak now by the Spirit that inspired these words. Illuminate them to our understanding and use a wretchedly sinful crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So John 4, it's a pretty familiar passage for many of us, maybe not everybody, but it's the story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. Um, John 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is noon, the way they did time. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but, you're, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you're entering into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade. This is God's word. It doesn't fade. It abides forever and forever. So it'll come uh, as no surprise to you um, that Joe Biden is not seeking my presence today. He hasn't invited me to dinner at the White House tonight and sent Air Force One to get me. 
And um, he didn't seek my presence yesterday, and uh, if I've got it uh, with any clarity at all, he will not seek my presence tomorrow. You're not surprised because you know that I have no end with the president. This text tells us something very amazing. I would say absolutely amazing. And that is that God is seeking worshipers. It's one thing to tolerate. It's another thing to welcome. It's another thing yet to welcome warmly. It's yet another to seek, right? To seek. Come, 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 you're welcome, seek. Suppose someone shows up at your door unannounced, perhaps it's a neighbor, and they knock on your door and ask if they can come in. Now this neighbor happens to be a, a, a neighbor who's let his dog do number two in your yard all the time. And when they cook out, they play loud music and just irritate the fire out of you. How will you react? When this neighbor knocks at your door, will you send them away or will you let them in? And if you let them in, with what attitude will you let them in? Well, I think you might let them in, but certainly not warmly. You might have an agenda, some things you want to talk to them about. You might tolerate them at best. Certainly in my story, you do not seek their presence Brothers and sisters, we have offended God in ways far worse than the neighbor in my story. And yet, he not only tolerates, he not only welcomes warmly, he seeks. He comes and he calls. He seeks and knocks. He wants us to come to his place and worship him. And he welcomes us warmly when we do. That's what we call good news, right? The great God who lacks nothing is seeking worshipers among fallen humanity. That's amazing. That's a distinctively Christian idea, and it is true. Now, Jesus would have known that this Samaritan woman was not a true worshiper. She is ethnically different from him. She's a Samaritan, and if you're interested in that, you can search it and find it out. She's very ethnically different from the Jews. She's very religiously different. The Jewish uh, view of the uh, Samaritan religion, the Samaritans had a syncretistic kind of a self-made religion, uh, took a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit from over here and kind of made, syncretized their own false religion. So she's ethnically different. She's religiously different, and obviously she's morally different, right? She's got a morally messy past, as Jesus brings out in the story. She is alienated, and she's isolated from others in her community. She has to come to draw water at noonday when nobody else did. She was one of the ones that the good people in the city looked down upon, And so Jesus would have known that this lady needed to hear the good news, that the Messiah had come, the kingdom had come, that forgiveness was available, that acceptance was available even for her. Okay? Similarly, there are people that you and I meet day by day that need to know that. The most loving thing we could do to some people we know is to assume that they need to hear this good news. Maybe some of you are here today. 
to know that forgiveness and acceptance are still available for great sinners. Jesus is trying to give her a gift, a gift that will change her life and that will change her worship. He's trying to give her eternal life by following and trusting in Him. So I want to make three points. Long introduction, I know, but the points are not as long. Uh, the first one is God is seeking true worshipers from verse 23. God is seeking true worshipers. Uh, there's a clear pointer in the story uh, to what we mean by true worshipers. Um, when the lady says in verse 20, uh, she brings up this, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She shows that to her, uh, she thinks that for God, the big, one of the big issues is where we worship. Uh, a true worshiper is somebody that's not concerned with the externals like where do we worship? Where do we worship? She's concerned about that. Do we worship in a church building or do we worship out in the fields? When, uh, when uh, John Wesley and John, uh, uh, um, George Whitfield uh, began to preach in the, in the, in the hillsides uh, out in the outdoors in England in the, in the uh, uh, revival of the 1730s and 40s, uh, people said, that's wrong. That a minister in the Church of England should not preach out in the open air. They were concerned with the externals. Jesus says in verse 21 that the place is now irrelevant. Said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. But, but a true worshiper is somebody that's not concerned so much with the externals, right? So you can worship God in a, in a cathedral and you can worship God on a bench under a shade tree. I've kind of done both. Sally and I were at Evensong service in King's College, Cambridge once. It's a pretty magnificent place, King's College, Cambridge. But I've also worshipped on a little bench. Uh, I call it a third world bench in, in Belize and similar thing in Ecuador. Uh, and they worship out under trees because it's hot and they don't have air conditioning. Does it really matter? Jesus says, no, it doesn't matter. She's concerned about the externals. Another way that... Uh, that um, a true worshiper is not concerned so much with ritual. Yes, I think liturgy is important, but it's not everything because the heart has to be engaged. And, and, a, and, and certainly one of the externals would be to be overly concerned with how people dress, and we could go on and on. A true worshiper is someone who's concerned with the internals. Jesus said, worship the Father in spirit and in truth from the heart uh, and in truth and, and is, as directed in the Word of God. Music that reflects biblical content, liturgy that's word-centered, Christ-centered, gospel-centered, means of grace-centered. So a true worshiper is one who avoids overemphasis on some things and emphasizes others. Why is God seeking such worshipers? Well, the obvious thing is for His glory, but the not-so-obvious thing is for their good, and we'll see more about that in a few minutes. So, if you ask yourself, well, how is God seeking worshipers in this passage? Well, it's a pretty interesting answer to that. Broadly speaking, he's doing it by revealing himself. That's what he did in the incarnation, right? Jesus would later say in John 14, He who has seen me has seen the Father. 
but no, narrowly speaking, that's what he's doing here. He's revealing himself to her to get her to worship him, to glorify him, and to do her some good. Look at verse 26. Jesus said to her, she has just said, I know that Messiah is coming, he who, called, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let me give you a little, literal translation of the Greek there. It says, I am, comma, the one speaking to you. Because you see, back in, it, at the burning bush, when, when Moses said uh, to, to God, who, who are you? What should I say to the people when I go back and tell them uh, that, that I'm supposed to lead them out of their bondage? And God said, tell them, I am has sent you. And then all through the Gospel of John, John is using what, what I've called, and many others have called, the great I am's of John. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. And there's seven of these I am's, and then this one. And it's the same Greek, I am, the one speaking to you. So he's revealing himself to her. God sent his son to accomplish redemption. He poured out his spirit to apply the redemption. And God uses his church to speak words that call people to embrace the redemption. We do it in worship services like this, and we do it by wells and at coffee shops and in libraries and other places. We, we tell people, that Jesus has come. So, secondly, I want to make the point from this passage that to be a true worshiper, one must give up false worship. To be a true worshiper, one must give up false worship. That's what this woman had to give up, and that's what you and I will have to give up. Now, I want to say something about the prevalence of false worship, uh, and you've probably heard this, many of you. We are made in the image of God, all of us, Male, female, men, women, and children. We're made in the image of God. We're made inherently and inescapably uh, religious. And we're made for worship. Uh, we're made to be worshipers. As a matter of fact, I would contend that throughout the world, people worship. Everybody worships something. Atheists, agnostics, other religions, everybody worships something. And by that I mean everybody has an object of ultimate concern in their life. An object of ultimate concern. And practically speaking, whatever your object of ultimate concern is, is your God. It might be money, or power, or sex, or wisdom, or whatever. But whatever is your object of ultimate concern, that is, practically speaking, your God. And... Our fallenness tends to cause us, lead us to focus on false gods. Hers, apparently, was sensuality or sexuality. But more deeply, you know, she'd had five husbands. She's living with a guy now that's not her husband. Uh, more deeply, I think her issue was significance or satisfaction or security I think you could preach a, a fine sermon from this text on, under the title, An Unsatisfied Woman. 
because I think she felt she could find a type of satisfaction, ultimate sat satisfaction in the arms of a, of a man. And she never found it. She never was able to find it. It was interesting. Um, it's amazing how God does these things in planting out the hymns uh, in the... Uh, well, I should be able to find it because I marked it. Yeah, in the first hymn... Uh, in the, about the sixth line of the first hymn we sang, and naught can satisfy. Apart from you I long and thirst, and naught can satisfy. Nothing satisfies apart from God. And that's right. And then in the next stanza, in the fifth line, it says, in you my soul is satisfied. Yep, that's the gospel rightly applied. That's where we're left. And so she thought, she could get from a man what you can only get from God. And that is a type, a deep-seated satisfaction and security and significance that only a personal relationship with God can give you. And so she had come up empty time and time again. She crushed her marital relationships expecting a man to give her what only God could give her, this type of significance and security and satisfaction. And she crushed the relationships. And so she finally gave up on it and said, oh, I'm not going to marry this sixth guy, I'm just going to live with him. It's a false God for her. What's the major problem with false worship? I don't know what the idols in your life are. I know somewhat what the idols in my life are. But the major problem with false worship or with idols is that they offend God, right? The first commandment. Uh, you shall have no other gods besides me. And, uh, but the minor problem is this. The minor problem is that false gods cannot help. They cannot deliver. They cannot satisfy. They hurt. Instead of delivering, they drain. Instead of giving, they take. Instead of developing, they destroy and they delude. And so Jesus is telling her that she's pretty ignorant about her worship. In verse 22, you worship that which you do not know. You don't understand God. Paul said that to the Athenian philosophers on Mars Hill. You worship in ignorance. This is what I'm going to proclaim to you. And I think until we give up our false religion, our false worship, we'll not know what it means to be a true worshiper. And so I call you today in Jesus' name to give up your false worship of people and places and things. We need to come to God empty-handed. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. So the first step to true worship is to give up false worship. And then thirdly, to give up false worship, one must meet Jesus and worship Him. There are several confusions in this passage I want to point out, some that I haven't already pointed out, some that I have, okay? She's confused about who Jesus is. That one's pretty obvious, beginning in verse 9, but particularly in verse uh, 12. Uh, she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? Well, yeah, he is, right? <laughs> He's much greater than her father Jacob, but she doesn't get it. She's confused by that. And then in verse 19, after he's told her her life story, she says, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. But she means by that, I think, I perceive you're only a prophet. 
He is a prophet. He's the final prophet. Yes, he's the final prophet, the one that Moses predicted in chapter 18. But he's more than that, right? And, and she's confused, I think, about not only his person, but, but his, his purpose. In verse 15, she says, The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So he said, Look, I've got living water to give you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about being filled with the Spirit and uh, a life that bubbles over in joy and everything. And, and she doesn't get it. And she said, well, yeah, I want some of that water because I don't want to have to come back to this well at noon when it's hot and I'm going to be ostracized if anybody sees me and meets me. But I think more deeply, as I've already said, she's really confused about what will make her happy. Can a man make her happy? Or can only God make her happy? Brothers and sisters, some of you are very concerned about, uh, I mean, confused about that too, I think. What will make you happy? What will satisfy your soul? And, 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 and the longing that you have deep within, what will, what, will, what will work for you? She's very confused about that, and many of us are as well. Not only are there confusions in this passage, there, there are confrontations. Obviously, in, Jesus, in verses 16 and following, Jesus confronts her about her past. She's confronted by Jesus, the prophet. And in verse 26, as I pointed out, she's confronted by Jesus, the Messiah. And the, the, the confrontation leads to confessions. In verse 29, can this be the Christ? She didn't want to say it, at least, but she's willing to ask it. Can this be the Christ? Uh, verse 29, this is a man who told me all I ever did. And in verse 42, the last one I read, the, the Samaritans or that had come out and met him, this is indeed the Savior of the world. Uh, they confessed him uh, because they found out who he really was and that he warmly embraced even this uh, woman with the five failed marriages and was living with a guy. Have you confessed him with your mouth? Have you confessed him with your life? Are you confessing him every day with the way you live? So, worship is really important to who we are, and it's important to God, right? So I'm, I'm preaching about the, what I consider five essentials of the Christian life. And I think without God as our God and without worshiping God as our God, uh, our souls will be unfulfilled and God will fail to be glorified by our lives. And that's why worship is, to, I think, one of the uh, five essential elements of living as a Christian. In my introduction, I said to you that President Biden is not seeking my presence. Uh, my hunch is that he's not seeking yours either. But I've got something better to offer you than the presence of Joe Biden or any other president. God is seeking you. God wants you. God wants you at his table. God wants you in his house. God wants you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, God wants you among his children. He is still seeking those who will worship him in spirit and truth. And so the call is to give up our false religions and embrace Jesus as Master and Lord. He will not just tolerate you. He will not just welcome you. But He seeks you and 
and will welcome you warmly and will delight over you with singing as the one who was sought. He will take you into his arms and he will love you such that your soul is satisfied. This woman had known the arms of many lovers, but none had given her what she longed for most deeply in her heart. None satisfied her. Our false gods have failed us too. And so what I'm offering you today is the arms of a lover. Don't take that out of context. I'm offering you the arms of a lover who will satisfy you. I offer you the one who will give you living water. And if you drink of him, you will never thirst again. I offer you Jesus, the Messiah. Drink of him, dear friend. Drink deeply. Don't pass the cup up. Drink in the faith that he lived and died so that you can live and never die. Let's pray. Lord our God, forgive us um, that really we've done exactly what this woman did. Her sin was sexuality and she thought it would satisfy her soul and she went from man to man to man and she never found it so she met you in this passage. And just like her, we've gone from God to God to God and it's not satisfied. We've made money, and then we've made more money, and then we've made more money, and somehow it increased our insecurity to have more money. Because we're told in the Scriptures, money won't give us security. And we sought to be somebody in the eyes of the world, and the more we became somebody in the eyes of the world, the more insecure we got. Just like the politicians and the movie stars. The more they get, the more they long for. And we've, 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 we've played the fool like they have, Lord. So help me, help all of us to give up our false worship so we can know true worship, so we can be satisfied in you. That is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.